I'm Sarah Pappert, and this is When I Got Here, Untold Immigrant Stories, a podcast from Literacy Achieves. At Literacy Achieves, we provide English literacy programs for immigrant and refugee families in Dallas, Texas. Our students come to us from all over the world. We celebrate them and what they bring to our country. When I Got Here tells the stories of immigrant journeys to the United States, why they left their homelands, and the lives they are making here. I'm Byron Harris. In Valencia, Venezuela, Ruthie Alonga found herself sitting, again, in a long line of cars waiting for gas. The year was 2002, and her nation was descending into chaos. Ruth and her friends had packed a gas line picnic, brought a few beers. A Monopoly board was spread out in the back seat. Her country was among the world's richest in oil wealth, and yet here they were in a gas line, making the best of a miserable thing. Ruth Villalonga so you knew you were going to be there six, eight hours. Like, so I would go and say, hey, Byron, let's just say you were my friend. I actually have to fill up my tank. Oh, no. Yes. You want to come along? Yeah, sure. Okay, perfect. Bring whatever. Yeah, I'm going to bring the Monopoly. Yeah, let's pick up so-and-so. Okay. And I'm going to grab some sandwiches and let's bring like some beer or whatever. Okay, perfect. And there will be like four of us in a car, literally inside the car waiting for hours until eventually it will be our turn to get gas. Valencia, a city of about a million and a half people then, is the third largest in Venezuela. It was a manufacturing hub. Firestone Tires, Chrysler Cars, General Motors, DuPont. But the metropolis was edging toward paralysis as Venezuela stumbled for a stable government. Ruth had watched since she was a child. What I learned at the age of nine was that people were actually trying to overthrow the government because it wasn't working for them. Because they were, they were very corrupt. There was an attempted coup back home. And I was in school when that happened. And the violence broke. And then the military were fighting right outside of school. And we had the, the gas bombs coming inside the school. And my sister was in pre-K and I was very concerned because I wanted to go get her and we had to hide and the nuns were doing whatever to keep us safe. But it was a pretty, you know, unsettling situation. She watched it all and decided she wanted to be a journalist. After graduating high school, it became clear that to get a college degree in journalism, she'd have to move to Caracas, the capital, by herself nearly unheard of for a young woman in Venezuela. Nobody goes and lives away from the family to go to college. That's unthinkable. Why would you? But I did because in my state, in the whole state of Carabobo, which is where Valencia is the capital, they didn't have a journalism school. As she advanced toward graduation, Venezuela marched toward a new and controversial government. Hugo Chavez, a military officer who tried to take over in a coup in the early 90s, was elected president in 1998. Chavez rode in on a tide of populism, saying he would help the poor. And he did, for a while. 
In what was called a pink tide of socialism, he formed alliances with Castro in Cuba and across Latin America. Chavez was a guy who built an international image that was robust and really represented the fantasy of the Western world in terms of the type of country we should be building. But it was all a lie. It was a populist guy with a cult of personality type of approach to things who actually elevated all those anti-values and rewarded them. That's how you destroy a country. Because on top of that, what he did when he came on board, he needed the support of the military. A lot of people, he made them take their retirement early. He created programs to help the military get homes, get this, get that. So a lot of money, very um, little interest, and a lot of cash flow going into the military, which led to a lot of corruption. While Ruth was still in school, her nation was in turmoil. She took the first of two jobs in journalism, first at a newspaper in Caracas. Working there, we were held hostages at least twice because my office was next to one of the most uh, controversial reporter at the time who was speaking about what was going on with the military in particular. So we were held hostages twice. There were bombs, literally homemade bombs thrown at our office. I still remember the day I was on the phone, I think, with my mom, or maybe I called her when I heard and I saw the smoke. And I would see the lady in the reception. She looked like a fish out of the water on the floor. I don't know why she was shaking or what she was trying to do, but I remember that very clearly. And this happened in more than one occasion. After graduation, her mother convinced her to move back home, and she took a job with a local TV station in Valencia. It was right across the street from where she was living with her parents, but that did not make it safe. We were also attacked. My mom could see from our balcony. She would see the protesters at the door of the station because I lived in a fifth floor right across from the station. And she would see them attacking and throwing stones and swearing they were going to kill everybody inside. And I was inside. Frustration is raging in the nation, so intensely that there are calls for a general strike to jolt Chavez into keeping his promises for reform. One problem, a general strike can hurt the strikers as much as those in power. They are calling for a general strike and they are asking the general public to please abide by it and not show up to work not open businesses, because this is a measure we are taking to pressure the government into living. Pretty much, these are our demands, and unless this is covered and Chavez takes care of these, we will not give in. The general strike took hold. And the whole world is paralyzed. Except for the media out there, you don't see anything. They also organized protests. So they will call us out to come out of our like strike and out of our homes to protest. So it's not just we're paralyzing the economy, but we're also out there 
pretty much making our, our needs be heard and making sure that you know and understand. So in the first couple of days, you could still venture out and you would find a couple of businesses open, like a bakery, but it would only open for a couple of hours. Or somebody will give you a call and say, hey, if you need, you know, rice or whatever, I found a little shop somewhere where the owner is opening like for two hours in the morning or something. Ruth, though, needed more than just rice. She is a diabetic. She needed insulin to stay alive. So during the strike, it was very hard to find. And we would spend nights just driving around to see if we would find one open pharmacy here or there that could have it. As a type 1 diabetic, I've always needed insulin to, to leave. When I was first diagnosed, my parents sent me to Boston, where it's the best diabetes center in the world. I remember my dad sold his car in order to send me. We had another car, but it was such a major kind of undertaking financially that he sold the car to make sure that he had all the liquidity and to be able to, to afford it. In April of 2002, there is a coup. For 48 hours, Chavez is removed. A new president swears himself into office, but literally hours later, Chavez is back in power as president, running the country. And I understood that Chavez was there to stay and that there was not going to be a way out. So she began plotting her exit from her home country, collecting evidence of the threats and bombings she'd suffered at work. There were a couple of things that sort of prompted my, my departure, and I would say it was obviously the insulin scarcity, the fact that I was attacked so many times at my job in Caracas and then in Valencia, and obviously the strike and what that brought in terms of where is the hope here. So my mom was like, why don't you take a break, go to your aunt in Rochester, New York, and stay there for a couple months like you've always done. Growing up, my aunt lived in Rochester since I, before I was born. She was surprised when she was granted asylum in the United States, partly because of the turmoil in her country, partly because of her need for insulin, she had found a new country. But she realized that to flourish here, she needed to improve her English. She found an English as a second language program. That's, it was a very similar program like Literacy Achieves. There were people from all walks of life, from all ages. We were all there ready to, to learn some English. And I remember very clear, Mr. Duffy was the, the teacher. I always remember him. I'm very grateful because his own strategy was to make us read the paper and select words we didn't know, cut them out, and then paste them and look in the dictionary what they meant and write it down. Eventually, she was able to enter graduate school. But as a career woman, she experienced the darker side of American life. She speaks with an accent and looks like the Latina she is. Her husband is not from Latin America. He doesn't have an accent, and he doesn't look anything other than just a random white guy. So his experience is very different than mine. I've felt it. I remember a friend of my husband who asked me, do you speak Mexican too? 
Uh, well, how can I explain? <laughs> I'm like, where do I start? So that part is a little bit hard. But yes, I have experienced discrimination. She's been passed over for promotions in favor of white women with less education and experience. One of them didn't have a bachelor's degree. And then I was in charge to train them. Oh, they need to learn from you. And this is a boss, a white guy in his 50s, who I had, I literally talked to him about promotions and brought my case up with facts and evidence at least four times in the five years I worked for him. And it was, and the same happened to my colleague who was black. I think those are personal decisions that people make. I don't know that there is anything in the system that, that made him make that decision. I, I just feel that I cannot blame the country for people, or this boss in particular, discriminating against me. But I cannot say it was because he was brought up that way. I have to blame him as a person. So I feel that that is more my approach to it because at the same time, I have had great people who have given me great opportunities. Today, Ruth is a citizen. She and her dentist husband, known as Dr. Al, have two children. She serves on the Literacy Achieves Board of Directors. Her parents have joined her in Texas. I never thought I was going to cry as much as I cried today when my mom told me she became a citizen. But English continues to be their struggle. Yeah. And I've seen that organizations like Literacy Achieves have given them, yes, some of the English, but more importantly, a sense of community. It has allowed them to rebuild their lives after losing everything. She will never forget the man who caused them to lose everything, Hugo Chavez, and the threat people like him posed to democracy. He robbed me. He robbed me of the opportunity to live a life in what the only place I knew and the place I cherish. Because on top of that, I come from a paradise. You know, it was just such a beautiful, amazing country. And he did rob me. And he destroyed and divided my family. Chavez died in 2013, but was replaced by another dictator, his vice president, Nicolas Maduro. Under Maduro, Venezuela has descended into even more chaos. According to the United Nations, 94% of the nation lives in poverty. A fifth of its population has left the country. Chavez really changed our history, destroyed our country, robbed us from the opportunities, and left a legacy I mean, as a legacy, a system that is absolutely broken, and more importantly, a value crisis from which we have not been able to recover. While aware of America's imperfections, she praises its achievements. I am very aware of its failures and of the things that probably need fixing. But having live through what I have lived through with all we have going on and we still have a lot of issues to work on we do have a very close to perfect union I think that there are a lot of things equality discrimination opportunities for everyone being a big topic but just the fact that we recognize that at least in some circles and that there's a lot of people 
kind of locking in arms, trying to move that forward. That in itself is a testament to the great experiment this is. I think that I'm in a, in a very, very privileged position as an immigrant because I have the language, I was able to settle and literally rebuild my life here. And for that, I am so grateful and so humbled, really, by the type of opportunities this country offers. That's why I'm so committed to giving back and to do whatever I can to preserve the beauty I think we are. Just striving to be better, and we are in a good place. We just need to refine certain aspects of it. I also feel it's my duty as an immigrant who has really been blessed to be here, it is my duty in that position to keep the hope alive, to keep the hope that we are in a good place and we will continue to move forward in the right direction. I consider that part of my duty. listening to When I Got Here, Untold Immigrant Stories, a production of Literacy Achieves, where we provide free English literacy programs for immigrant and refugee families in Dallas. If you have an immigrant story you'd like to contribute, visit our website, literacyachieves.org, to learn how you can join our efforts.